Hi, it's Jen. And just a heads up before we start the show, today we're discussing teen mental health. And we just want to remind you that if you or anyone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. And thank you for listening. The COVID-19 pandemic has many young people struggling. While many of us are no longer physically isolating, some young people still feel things are just different. Hi, my name is Delani. I'm a senior in high school, and I think the reason that the pandemic messed with the mental health of me and so many of my peers so much was because we were so lonely. That's kind of obvious, but we went from seeing so many people to seeing just about no one every day. And it really makes you depressed. It makes you so sad in a way that none of us had ever really experienced or realized before. And so we did what everyone else did. We turned to social media. It became this echo chamber of all the bad things happening in the world. And so by the time I got back to school my junior year, I was just so sad. And I didn't really know how to socialize with anyone else. So that gave me even more anxiety. And it was just, it was really scary. And it still kind of freaked me out. Jelani, thanks for that message. It's no secret that the pandemic is taking a toll on the mental health of people of all ages, but data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Youth Behavior Survey is shedding light on just how fragile teens are feeling. The survey released last month showed that two in five U.S. high schoolers experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2021, and nearly a quarter of those surveyed seriously considered suicide. Rates of sadness were most pronounced in teen girls and LGBTQ youth. It's the highest rates reported in a decade. So what's driving these numbers, and how can parents help their teens navigate these tumultuous times? We answer those questions and get into a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Ohio is Dr. Lisa Damore. She's a clinical psychologist and the author of several books about adolescence. Her latest is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Dr. Victor Fornari. He's the Vice Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry for Northwell Health. That's New York's largest health system. Dr. Fornari, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Lisa, teens are struggling. We heard that in Jelani's message. What is the data telling us about their mental health right now? Well, the data that the CDC released earlier this month, or actually last month, um, do map on to exactly what we were seeing clinically in the fall of 2021 when those data were collected, which is that teens were miserable. And Jelani's message message captures it so well. Um, They had been isolated. They were entering their third year, disrupted by the pandemic, their third school year. Um, Even for kids where things were starting to improve, my recollection clinically is that they didn't trust it. They felt like it could all be taken away at any moment. And so, you know, we're going to have to see a new round of data to see where we are now. Um, I think Jelani captured it quite beautifully in saying that even going back felt really hard and that there have been lingering effects for a lot of young people. Um, But it certainly puts us on high alert to think about what this means for teenagers right this minute, given how horribly they were feeling during the pandemic. 
Dr. Fernari, in your practice in New York, what trends are you observing in adolescent mental health? Well, I think the most important thing I'd like to begin with is first thanking you for bringing this to more public attention because it's so critical. Even prior to the pandemic, youth mental health has been a serious concern. And so although it's not as widely discussed, uh, around one in five youth will experience at least one psychiatric disorder before the age of 18 if they're in good physical health and don't have any developmental disorders. Now, because if you have a chronic medical condition or a developmental disorder, that could be as high as one in three prior to the pandemic. So the base rates of serious emotional disturbances were already present, although often not spoken about, not identified for a variety of reasons, denial, shame, stigma, access to care. But the pandemic really dramatically increased those rates. The rates of anxiety and depression nearly doubled. And as you indicated, primarily in adolescent young women, as well as in the LGBT youth, groups that are often uh, struggling uh, with their internalizing emotions uh, and the LGBT youth also struggling with kind of their own sense of acceptance, oftentimes with a feeling of rejection from their families and community and a high rate of bullying. But all of this in the pandemic, uh, as was very articulately stated by the adolescent who described it, shifted because in the isolation of the pandemic, youth went online on Facebook, on other social media, and really spent a great deal of time really observing and listening to all the worries and woes and problems that they were encountering on the various social media. And it really did exacerbate what was already a a significant problem, aggravated by isolation and also aggravated by the extensive use of social media. Lisa, when I think back to my teen years, it's a complicated phase of life. You've got these strong and complex emotions. Sometimes you have difficulty giving voice to what you're feeling. What's unique about the teen years when we look at our overall development? So you are right. Being a teenager has never been easy. Raising a teenager has never been easy. And one of the things that we know to be true is that teenagers experience very powerful emotions. They're more powerful than they are during childhood and during adulthood. And they are also undergoing an enormous amount of change. You know, if you put a 12-year-old next to an 18-year-old, you're looking at almost two different species. And, And what we know is that change equals stress. And so the baseline for adolescence is often a very emotionally intense period with a lot of stress for everyone involved. And so the challenge for parents now, and this is something that we can help with, is to tease apart what is expectable and typical adolescent ups and downs from a considerable mental health concern, you know, a serious mental health concern. And one of the ways that parents can do this is to really be attuned to if the feelings fit the context. You know, if a teenager is upset because their heart was broken, we expect to see distress in those circumstances. And then to tune into how the teenager is managing the distress. If teenagers are using adaptive strategies that bring relief, so that might be talking about, you know, feeling heartbroken, talking with friends, or teenagers will put on a sad playlist to help get their feelings out or going for a run, that is all um, as good as it can be. 
What we really want to be attentive to is when teenagers use strategies for coping that turn out to be harmful, whether it's abusing substances or tearing at the fabric of their relationships or turning against themselves, being harmful to themselves. Dr. Fornari, I wonder how the pandemic is affecting what we think of as typical adolescent development. We heard over and over how we're not designed to exist in prolonged periods of stress. So if you're an adolescent and your brain is developing, but you are under this continued feeling of a fight or flight, what does that mean for your development? Well, so much of this really will depend upon how the adolescent was managing prior to the pandemic. If they had good emotional health, they had good coping strategies, they were surrounded by a caring and supportive family and and school environment, that would be protective in terms of how they would navigate uh, the stresses of social isolation and uh, prolonged periods of time without their peers. Uh, For those youngsters who faced the pandemic already with some pre-existing stressors, perhaps uh, they were not having good coping strategies, their families may have had significant adversity, perhaps a history of trauma, uh, witnessing domestic violence, parental substance abuse, parental mental illness, all of the various stressors that our youth face because it's not easy for a kid to grow up. And families are struggling today with real life problems and the children and the adolescents are there trying to figure out how to navigate, oftentimes trying to be helpful uh, because they they see the distress in their family and they they wanna do what they can, uh, but often they have limitations. So I think so much of how youth responded to the social isolation of the pandemic really had to do with how they were prior to the pandemic and really what the environment was for them during the pandemic. I might just add that we've heard so many stories so poignantly about families that were so profoundly impacted by the pandemic. One in particular that comes to mind was a story of a, a an adolescent girl, uh, I think in the 11th grade, whose uh, mom was a single mom who was working. Uh, mom got COVID, she was hospitalized, And this uh, 16-year-old young woman was now at home caring for her younger brother with autism and her demented grandfather with Alzheimer's. And so here she was worrying about her mother's survival, trying to figure out how to take care of her younger brother and how to navigate managing her grandfather. So we see that for many kids, the level of stress was profound. And fortunately for that young woman, her mother recovered. And so that's a good thing. But we could see that the stresses of the pandemic impacted youth in so many different ways, depending upon their own individual context. Lisa, in your latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, you talk about resetting the definition of mental health. What do you mean? Well, one of the things that I had observed in place before the pandemic, and then it seemed to accelerate in the pandemic, was some confusion about what constitutes mental health in terms of how we were talking about it as a culture. Too often, I think, being mentally healthy is equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed. Um, And though I want people to have all of those feelings, it's not a good definition of mental health because invariably we're going to have ups and downs. And of course, our teenagers are too. 
So we can actually get to, I think, what's a much more reassuring definition and a more accurate one in terms of how we think about this, both from the research and clinical perspective, which is that mental health is about having feelings that fit within their context, make sense, even if they are painful, and then managing those feelings well. Well, Dr. Fornari, when we think about support systems for adolescents, it's not just parents, it's siblings, it's peer groups. But again, during this time of social isolation, that put a strain on how accessible those support systems were. How did that affect teens' mental health? Well, we know that historically what has been so protective for child-adolescent development is the network of caring and supportive, nurturing family, community, and friends. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, neighbors, uh, teachers, clergy, shopkeepers, all the people who make up the support of our community. And during the pandemic, so much of that was limited because of social isolation and fear of contagion. And families couldn't get together. I remember poignantly not being able to see my own adult kids and my own grandchildren and feeling that sense of longing and know that that was really hard for them as well. And so for all youth, that was very isolating and upsetting. And couple that with the fact that, you know, it's so important that people listen to one another. You know, it's so important that parents listen to their kids and that kids be talking and listening to their parents. But oftentimes what happened, kids were on technology, parents were on technology. And so it's not uncommon that even if parents were at home and kids were at home, each was on their respective devices, not talking to one another, not listening to each other and not trying to understand one another. So I think one of the most important things that families can do is really to try to spend time to talk together, to have the family meal, which has become such a scarce uh, entity in our society, which used to be uh, the primary place where people would reconnect at the end of each day at dinner time. Uh, and family meals really are something that I think really have to be uh, strengthened because that's a time when people are together and they can listen to one another. But I want to make sure to acknowledge that for some teens, there is safety. They find safety in online social networks, L- LGBTQ youth find community there that they may not find in their own homes or or their in real life communities. So is there a role technology plays in actually providing support that might be absent otherwise? Well, like many things in life, so many things have benefits when in measure and when in reason. And so of course there are some benefits to technology, to social media, but there are also risks. And I think that we have seen and heard repeatedly from youth that although they, they've enjoyed some of the relationships on social media, they also have felt victimized by feeling bullied, by feeling vulnerable, by feeling criticized. And so, yes, indeed, there can be opportunities for support from social media, but there are also risks. And part of the challenge and why I believe the Surgeon General is trying to increase the age at which social media is recommended, because vulnerable adolescents at at 13, 14 may be too young to really weather some of the challenges that they might experience that are negative on social media. 
Now, the truth is uh, that in measure, there are some benefits certainly to technology and to social media, but there are also risks that we're learning more and more about. And we also recognize that we don't have any real idea what the impact on the brain and social development is for youth growing up, spending so much time looking at a screen and looking at technology and not relating to people face-to-face with eye contact. It's a very different kind of social development and something which I I imagine over time we're gonna learn more about, but there's no question that it impacts the brain and some of that impact may not be positive. Let's head back to our inbox. Here's a message we got from Kevin in New York. My issue with the latest CDC announcement regarding uh, mental health for teen girls is that nobody seems to be addressing the environment with which these girls are forced to try to endure and survive, which means in this case, you would focus on the sexual assault that is occurring inside school buildings and in school environments. And we should note the CDC survey does include data on teen sexual violence. According to the report, 14% of girls surveyed said they'd been forced to have sex at some point in their lives. That's up from 12% in 2011. Lisa, how is the increase in sexual violence affecting teen girls' mental health? Well, um, you know, obviously it is enormously upsetting and traumatizing for the girls themselves. And then, of course, it's terrible to hear about. And it really does raise questions about what is going on, who is perpetrating this. Um, We don't have information in detail about who was actually doing the assault, and that is information we need to get much more of. But the fact of the matter is that sexual harassment usually begins in schools by age, around age grade six or seven. It starts much younger than people typically anticipate. And it's something that schools need to really be equipped to deal with in a very, very explicit way and not treat as just, um, you know, something that happens between kids where kids can, you know, use sexualized forms of bullying. It should be treated as the bullying it is. And then obviously sexual assault um, in its own right is traumatizing and we need to do everything we can to prevent it and to take incredibly good care of anyone who endures it. Well, 22% of gay, lesbian, or bisexual adolescents surveyed said they'd experienced sexual violence. What are we seeing with our LGBTQ youth? You know, we don't have as specific information as we need to address the problem as earnestly as it deserves to be addressed. And so I think the goal now is to get follow-up data, to get a really clear sense of where is this happening, how is this happening, you know, between whom is this happening, so that we can um, get to the bottom of it. I think it's really um, so challenging when you have very alarming numbers, but not the specifics that we need to um, root out the problem. Dr. Fornari, we got this question from Dar- Darcy who asks, I wonder if there is under-reporting for boys and sadness. Could they be equally as sad as girls but lack the emotional skills, range, and support to talk about their feelings the same way? What do you think? Well, certainly 
boys may express themselves differently than girls. Uh, oftentimes, they'll express themselves with behaviors rather than with internalizing sense of sadness or anxiety. Uh, we often have seen uh, boys who have a conduct disturbance who may have an underlying depression. So I certainly do agree that it's possible that boys may be sad, but expressing it in a different way. Uh, but but I, I want to come back to the issue about sexual assault, if I can, for a moment. I, I do think it's important for us to recognize the prevalence of child sexual abuse in our society, that it's currently reported about up to one in three young girls will be victim of sexual abuse before the age of 18, and one in six boys. That's huge. And so I, I also want us to be mindful that many of these perpetrators of sexual assault and violence they themselves were victims of sexual abuse as youngsters. Now, it doesn't excuse them, but we just have to recognize that part of the difficulty we are enduring now is that the prevalence of traumatic childhood experiences is high. And it puts these youth at increased risk for a wide range of behavioral psychiatric problems and substance use. And we have to realize that this predated the pandemic but once again, this is a population who approached the pandemic at higher risk based on their traumatic experiences. We're discussing teen mental health. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this email from Jasper, who says, Please discuss the rising rates in eating disorders, especially in folks assigned female at birth. I am a trans man who survived an eating disorder, and I find the data concerning. So there is evidence linking social media use to the increased prevalence of disordered eating among teen girls. One study published in 2019 by the University of Western Australia found that teen girls who spent daily time using Instagram and Snapchat were significantly more likely to exhibit disordered eating behaviors. Lisa, how are you seeing this play out in patients that, that you treat? So this is something that was um, one of the most alarming aspects of a rise in psychiatric disorders during the pandemic is that we saw an, what one clinician said to me, an explosion of eating disorders in the pandemic, not just in girls, but in, you know, um, on balance, primarily in girls. And I think the way that we want to understand the role of social media in this is really around the algorithms that drive a lot of the social media experiences that we have, where anything that a teenager or an adult looks at, likes, spends time on, comments on, um, those data are collected by the algorithms that drive social media platforms, and then more content along those lines is put in front of that young person on their feed. And so what we saw in the pandemic were a lot of young people who had a lot of time on their hands and were very lonely and very sad, who may have gone searching online for fitness or diet or um, before and after photos of weight loss. And then soon their social media feeds were flooded with that content. And especially in the absence of getting to just be around their peers and out in the world, what happens is the norms start to shift for a young person about what they think is how we live or how one should look. And so um, of all of the ways that social media may have really made things worse in the pandemic, though I also do feel like for a lot of kids it was a lifeline socially at the same time, the um, eating disordered behavior 
was a big one, and clinicians were overwhelmed. Um, care, centers that care for kids with eating disorders were saying to me, we've never been so busy and we've never had kids coming in as, um, as bad off as they are when we finally get to take care of them. I, I would love to hear from both of you on how parents navigate this age when young people are seeking more independence. So I'm thinking of maybe young people in the 13 to 17-year-old range, or maybe even a little younger than that developmentally, and, and a parent trying to figure out how much, how much do I trust you to make good choices, to not engage in, in harmful social media, and how closely do I have to watch? Because I, I would imagine that's a sort of a difficult balance to strike. Dr. Fornari? Well, first of all, Parents don't begin to understand their kids at age 13. The relationship between the child and the parent is cultivated early on, and so much of that will be determined by the parents setting the tone because they really demonstrate through their own actions and language uh, what they think and how they feel. So our kids know exactly what we're thinking. And they know whether or not we're accepting, whether or not we're judgmental. And I often say to families, you know, be mindful of the language you use at home. The language can be filtered with so much judgment, so much criticism, or it could really demonstrate a great deal of acceptance and nurturing. And so the family environment or the atmosphere in which the child grows up sets the stage for how they're going to approach adolescence once they get to the, the point of 13 to 17. And by then, I believe that parents and kids know each other a fair amount. They've had conversations. They can talk openly and comfortably about uh, safety. And, and I remind parents in front of kids, and I remind kids in front of parents. I, I tell kids, you know, it's not easy raising parents. I tell parents, you know, I would keep this kid even though he or she's not perfect, most are worse. So, you know, fasten your seatbelt. And I remind both groups to focus on what's important. You know, sometimes they'll say he or she left the wet towel on the floor. I want them to hang it up. Or somebody didn't put their dirty socks in the, in the hamper. And I go, listen, there's three or four things that are really important. And the wet towel on the floor or the socks on the floor are not t two of them. And they'll look at me like, what's important? And I'll say, listen, what's important is that your child knows that whenever they get in a car, they wear a seatbelt every time. Hmm. And it's important that your child knows that when they get in the car, that the driver not be drinking, and that they know not to get in the car if a driver's been drinking. And it's important for your child to know what's safe. And then, depending on the developmental level, you can go into a range of conversations about safety, whether it has to do with safety with substances, safety with sex, safety with a variety of areas. But the truth is, what's really important are safety. Our job as parents is to help kids survive adolescence, right? I tell parents, your job is to bring them to the threshold of age 26 when the brain is fully matured and those frontal lobes now are hopefully using all the wisdom that they've gained from their knowledge. Because oftentimes parents think that by the time they've gone through puberty and they're full size, they're grown, they forget that the brains are still immature because there's such a... Uh, disconnect between the rate of physical growth and emotional development. Mm. And so I, I think parents really have to 
set the stage, be mindful of their language, try not to be judgmental, to be open and accepting and nurturing. And kids have to know that it's safe to talk to parents about things that are really important to them. Lisa, anything to add? You know, I just want to underscore the emphasis on safety when talking to teenagers, because teenagers will say something like, you know, what would you do if you caught me smoking weed? And those can be very provocative moments where parents might be inclined to say, you know, you'd be grounded, we'd, you know, do all sorts of things. And it's really useful for the parents to say, here's my worry. It's not safe. It's not safe for you. So whether I catch you or not, it's much more about your safety. And one of the things I say clinically to teenagers all the time is, don't worry about getting caught. You're probably not going to get caught. Focus on whether what you're doing is safe. Focus on whether you could get hurt. Um, Safety goes with kids everywhere they go. Um, Adults don't. So putting the emphasis on that as opposed to laws or morals or the parents' judgment often keeps teens safer. Dr. Fornari, what can you tell us about access to care when a teen needs it? Yeah, so access to care is a critically important issue, and certainly the pandemic has really demonstrated to us that by the emergency uh, act of allowing telehealth to be available throughout the pandemic, it increased access to so many families and vulnerable youth. And now as we're gearing down, returning to a more pre-pandemic time, we believe that there will remain a hybrid system with access to telehealth, as well as some face-to-face, which for many young people uh, is more effective. Uh, But we recognize that we need to create more mental health services. Uh, We know that uh, many areas struggle with a lack of access, and telehealth is hoping to meet that unmet need. And and we are working closely with different organizations to try to support this so that uh, access can be met. Now, following a two-year decline, the CDC also reported recently that suicide rates were up among teens and young adults between the ages of 10 and 24. They're increasing particularly in populations most affected by the pandemic, including Black and Hispanic Americans. Lisa, why are we seeing these increases among younger and racially underrepresented groups? Um, We don't exactly know. And one of the things that... um we were aware of is, as we saw these rising rates, especially in um, marginalized adolescents, the data we had explaining why teenagers do die by suicide was largely data on white adolescents that was then generalized wrongly to all adolescents. So there was a congressional um, committee that fast-tracked research on suicide among black teenagers Um, They did get some preliminary results suggesting that the precursors to suicide in black teenagers are not the same as the precursors that we've traditionally seen in white teenagers. Um, They do not always have a, um, a diagnosis as often as white teenagers do, and they often have had a past suicide attempt. Now, what these data tell us really is much more a story about structural um, racism and lack of access to services than anything that's as illuminating as we need it to be. But I think it's, you know, it's so alarming for parents to hear suicide data around anyone, and especially, you know, those raising adolescents. And what I want parents to know is if they are worried about their teenager, if they have a reason to be concerned for their teenager's safety, they should just ask their teenager Um, how things are going. And they can say something along the lines of, you know, because of whatever X, Y, and Z, the thing that made the parent concerned, 
I need to ask you a question that may feel out of the blue, but have you had any thoughts about harming yourself or ending your life? Ask the question. Um, if you don't get an answer that's entirely reassuring, take your kid to the emergency room. But the thing that parents need to know is that asking a teenager will not make them suicidal. But when teenagers are suicidal, the research tells us that they're very glad you asked. That's Lisa Damore. She's a clinical psychologist and author of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Also with us, Dr. Victor Fornari. He's the vice chair of child and adolescent psychiatry for Northwell Health. That's New York's largest health system. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This episode was originally broadcast from KVPR Studios in Fresno, California. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.